If you're a regular Geeks Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on iTunes or using the podcast app on your phone. We currently have 925 five-star ratings, and it would be great to get that up to 1,000. And so I want to give a special thank you to Russ706, who just gave us this five-star review. Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is far and away the best podcast for lovers of science fiction, fantasy, horror, and intellectually stimulating discussions. I miss John Joseph Adams, but David Barkertley is a great host, interviewer, and moderator. I especially enjoy it when Kirtley digs into the guests' reading backgrounds. I look forward to checking out the week's topic every Friday. Sometimes I'm a little disappointed in the topic choice, but invariably Kirtley delivers a thought-provoking and entertaining show. During the pandemic, I revisited the first 100 shows. They aged very well and were a lot of fun. Thank you, and keep up the great work. So big thanks again to Russ706 for that great review. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 442 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Jan Eleven. She's a professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College and director of sciences at Pioneer Works, a center for arts and science in Brooklyn. She's also the author of the nonfiction books How the Universe Got Its Spots and Black Hole Blues and Other Songs from Space, as well as the novel A Madman Dreams of Turing Machines. And we'll be speaking with her today about her new book, Black Hole Survival Guide. And now here's our interview with Jan Eleven. All right, so we're here with Jan Eleven. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Okay, and so your new book is called Black Hole Survival Guide. So how did it come about? Yeah, so I keep referencing this Mark Twain quote where he says, um, I didn't have time to write a short letter, so I wrote a long one instead. And I think this was a lot of material that I had over the years. And I, I decided to spend some time making this a really short book. And it was a discussion I had with my editor to really target target that, to make it very lean and very small. and um, and very condensed and to really weigh on every word. Um, and so this tiny little book was born. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 143 pages, which I really, I think all the all the book reviewers out there really, really appreciate that. Makes yeah. our lives a lot easier. <laughs> right, yeah. And it's physically really small, which is a beautiful choice that my editor made as well, that that it, you know, it, it has this really nice guidebook feeling by being so, so tiny. Yeah. It's also filled with a lot of paintings that a painter, a good friend Leah Halloran, made for me as original works for this book, over 20 paintings. So it's a beautiful little object. Yeah, yeah. No, it's gorgeous. You can just like stick in your back pocket, carry it around yeah. with you everywhere you go. Yeah. <laughs> just in case you wander <laughs> past a black hole and yeah, you well, need to consult it for tips. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll, we'll, definitely, we'll definitely get to that. But I was wondering, you know, in that Mark Twain quote, the point is that it's actually more work to write something short than something long. So... Was this yeah. more work than writing one of your longer books? I mean, it, well, it wasn't really. I think what the work that was involved was that part of it. So I think in some of my other books, they're, they're more structurally um, uh, just sort of explorative. I, I put a lot of energy into structures and things like that. And this was more straightforward in that way. So a lot of the hard work was really in making it smaller. Um, but I wouldn't say that overall it was more. I think all books are are hard to, are hard to <laughs> finish. Like you, you always have this feeling like I am never 
going to finish this book. It's never going to happen. And then, I don't know, all of a sudden it's November and you're doing Geek's Guide. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and I, I like shorter books and short stories and things. I always talk about that on the show. And I mean, I think that a lot of the the reason books have gotten longer and longer and longer is just because of commercial reasons. And I don't know, I, I, there's just a perception, I think, that longer books attract more attention or, you know, a lot of times, you know, you'll read a really good magazine article and then the author will expand it into a book and you're yeah. kind of like, ah, this was pretty much fine as a magazine article, you know? Yeah. It's interesting that, and I think that's why the Twain quote is so witty as, as he could be, because it really does um, point to something that there's something very beautiful for the receiver of a nice, short, well-intentioned, thoughtful letter. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think sometimes we just sort of, we take more seriously a tome, um, which really shouldn't be the case. Yeah, but so nobody in terms of your agent, editor, pub, uh, publicity people, marketing was was ever just like, should be, could we add another 100 pages to this? Yeah, no, I mean, definitely everyone was really excited about the concept of this sweet little book. And I think that once it arrived, we were all <laughs> delighted with how how tiny it is. Um, I think it's really sort of a special attribute. But no, it's interesting. Nobody did say that at all. I think my my people are really decent folk. I find that they're they really believe in the book as the book should be. And and they don't buckle to that kind of psychology mercifully. Otherwise, I don't. I don't think I'd get anything published. <laughs> I thought it was if commercial like appeal. Yeah. <laughs> was like, do people really think, oh, I'd love a book on whether the universe is infinite or finite. And maybe we could have a novel about mathematicians. <laughs> so, um, so, yes, I feel very fortunate to have those collaborators. I thought it was funny. I saw on Twitter this morning you said, uh, quote, my own sister said to me yesterday, you have a new book out? Yeah. I kind of forgot to tell people <laughs> there's so much going on in the world and it's all so intense and distracting. I, I never sent an email around to all my friends and family. I just sort of started tweeting about it. They don't necessarily follow me on Twitter. So they just hadn't heard she was like, what? <laughs> well, well now that you're on geeks guides of the galaxy, I'm sure like internationally, it'll just be, you know, everyone yeah. will know. I love it. This is actually the most fun part is, is talking to people. I like this twist that, it's less um, that there's so many more recorded conversations. I actually have really been enjoying that as opposed to all the live in-person events, which can be quite grueling, a book tour. So I've actually been kind of enjoying doing the book tour this way. Have you talked to a lot of people about Black Hole Survival Guide or is this kind of the, the start of your... Well, we sort of started about a week ago um, and it's also published simultaneously in the UK. So there's been... I just did a BBC virtual lecture yesterday. I'm not sure if that's still available, but I'm sure you can watch it from anywhere. You don't have to be in the UK. Um, and I did a Harvard bookstore uh, lecture, which was actually kind of fun. I did it almost like a green screen. So I was like a weather girl with the, <laughs> with the illustrations behind me and, uh, you know, trying to point to them. It was, it was, it was a funny little experiment. So we've had, a, we've had a few conversations in the past 10 days. Yeah. No, it's it's it, been 10 days since publication, I guess. You know, it was, it was seven days into the fall of democracy and 10 days uh, <laughs> later, here we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no, but it's it's a it's a really great book. And, you know, I read a lot of popular science books and, and interview a lot of authors. And this is definitely one of the best written, you know, oh, most, most beautifully you. written popular science books I've ever read. That means um, a lot to me. I really appreciate that. Because I, like I said, we were leaning on every word. You know, it was very much about the language. For yeah. this. I just wanted to read this one little section. You say, um, bare isolated black holes still hide from us. 
but occasionally they are not alone, and they can tear off hunks of nearby material and throw the matter around to reveal themselves, let us know they're there, like an invisible man playing in the snow. Mm. I just thought that was such a beautiful image. Did you yeah. do you remember writing that? Yeah, or? I do. And you know, I I love I'm so appreciative that you are um paying attention to those things um i do remember writing and it's really funny i think zadie smith was talking about you know she sits down to write and sometimes somebody not very good shows up <laughs> and, <laughs> and and you have to know when to throw it away and sometimes you just you just feel it and it you're like channeling something and so i do i very much remember that moment i was really pleased with that yeah I heard you say that part of your motivation for writing this book was sort of your frustration at how many misconceptions people have about black holes. Yeah, I think um, people think of black holes as objects, as dense objects, and and uh, and they get caught up in kind of the monster truck aspect of <laughs> you know the black holes are monsters and they you know they destroy things. Um, and I think that it detracts from some of the more eerie and austere and gorgeous aspects of these, this very strange phenomena. Yeah. Well, I, I think certainly definitely I had, have always had, or for a long time had the idea of black holes as like whirlpools in space, like, like basically the same as a physical whirlpool. And yeah. your book really captures how, how different and alien they are to, to mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I, I think the whole opening is very strongly about how black holes are, are nothing. And we have to, uh, give up this idea of them as dense objects. If you, if you go up to a black hole, there's nothing there. It's, it's not an object in space time. It really is a space time. It's as though black holes are a place more than they are a thing. Yeah. And you can tell me if this is correct or not, but I felt like I had a bit of an epiphany. I mean, this would be maybe 10 or 15 years ago, but I, yeah, I'd always imagined black holes as whirlpools or discs or something. And it just sort of yeah. occurred, and I was always a little, I knew there was the event horizon, but I was always a little vague on where that was exactly. <laughs> and then just one day I was like, wait, no, it's a sphere. It's a black, it should be called a black sphere, right? And then the, <laughs> yeah. the, the surface of the sphere is the event horizon. And if you go inside the sphere, you can never get out again. And that, is that a more accurate way of? That's, so if you have a black hole that is not spinning, it has a spherical event horizon. That is exactly true. And when you go up to that event horizon, it is completely empty space time. There's nothing there. It merely marks the region where the curves in the shape of the space-time have become so strong that you would have to travel faster than the speed of light to escape. And so it's actually, if you were in empty space with complete darkness and you were right outside a black hole, you wouldn't know it was there. And if you cross the event horizon, it would be completely undramatic. You could float right across and not really realize anything was happening because there's nothing there. So the sphere is an imaginary, I mean, it's a real region in the space-time, but, but it's just, there's no painting of it and there's no material there. So you wouldn't even know you had crossed the event horizon. You'd be in a lot of trouble if you did. That is pretty much the first and strongest advice is don't cross <laughs> the event horizon. But, um, but yeah, the event horizon itself could be a completely undramatic uh, crossing. I guess this is one thing maybe I need a little, little clarification on. So, because it seems like at some points the black holes are completely invisible and you would never know they're there. And then at other points they're shining incredibly brightly because of the accretion disk. So mm -hmm. is it is it the case that um, like if there's stuff presently getting sucked in, they're very bright. And once they've sucked everything in, they're dark or, or is that wrong? Well, well, um, 
No, it's it's the intuition is is quite right. Black holes are effectively a shadow cast. So when we had this big excitement last year, when the Event Horizon Telescope revealed this image of the first ever human procured image of a black hole, um, that that was so exciting because uh, we've never done that. We've never taken a picture of a black hole, which really surprised people. There's all the evidence we have is is indirect um, in terms of pictures or telescopes. Um, but, uh, but what we're really taking a picture of with that experiment or that detector is, is the shadow cast by the event horizon. So in other words, you have to illuminate the area around a black hole to see it. And otherwise it is literally dark. It, there's no way to see it. It's, it, it, you would have, you know, just like to see a shadow of a tree, you need to have a light source. And so black holes are in, in that, picture uh the, there's not a whole lot of activity it's pretty it's a pretty cool calm accretion disk and what the accretion disk is doing for you this this disk of hot matter that's around the black hole all it's doing for you is lighting up the environment around the black hole so that you can actually see the shadow and um and other than that the other stuff uh you say is also quite true if you have something much more dramatic like it is tearing a star apart those are incredibly bright events. You get x-ray blasts, you get jets, you get all kinds of things. You don't actually see the black hole itself. You see the indirect consequence of it. And it is the strongest, brightest beacon in the universe when you have a black hole churning up a bunch of uh, magnetic field and plasma and relativistic particles. So, so those things, you, you can't see the shadow because you're blinded. So you can't see the black hole at all to some extent. All you can see is the mayhem it's causing <laughs> around it. And then, yeah, these things like quasars, which is basically what we're describing, they go quiet. So our, we have a supermassive black hole in the center of our galaxy that, that may once have been a quasar, that if you were in a galaxy far, far away and the light was still traveling billions of years from the past, they might look in our direction and believe the Milky Way is a quasar, an active, very energetic uh engine of, of the black hole churning up these magnetic storms. But right now, from 26,000 light years away, which is our distance from the center of the galaxy, it's quiet. So in the past 26,000, 26,000 years ago, that black hole was pretty quiet. So it's, it's um, yeah, it, it does, it goes quiet as soon as it's used up all its fuel, basically. I thought it was funny because you start off the book talking about a friend of yours who's, a, I think, a science writer who says, don't I already know everything about black holes? <laughs> yeah. Like, to what do you attribute? Because I don't think nobody says, you know, like, don't I already know everything about quantum entanglement or, you know, like, why, why is there this sort of confidence about black hole, this sort of unwarranted confidence about black yeah, holes? I, I think because there has been a lot of talk about um, black holes. And I, you know, I have a whole other book called Black Hole Blues, but it's not really so much about the black holes as it is about the, the climb, the scientific compulsion uh to explore but um but i think there's a lot out there but i think a lot of it is a, a lot out there about black holes but i think a lot of it again kind of hams up this sort of oh these are these uh incredibly dense objects not even light can escape and they're weapons of destruction so i think that sameness is what gave people kind of the sense well i already know everything about black holes and I, as a theoretical physicist, the, one of the aspects I love the most about black holes is this kind of really austere terrain of the theoretical and what they, what they really are. Because these astrophysical objects we see out in space 
are just one way to make a black hole. They're not actually synonymous with the black hole. And so there's all these misconceptions out there that I thought would be really cool, even if you thought you knew everything about black holes, to kind of grapple with the idea that they are nothing, to understand that, yeah, nature thought of a way to make some black holes by killing off a few stars. So they are the death state of very heavy stars, but that's not really their core identity. You could imagine making black holes in the Big Bang or maybe even a crazy high energy accelerator experiment. And then there's this sense in which um, when you start to think about them in this other way that all of these other attributes are revealed, like the black hole being dark on the outside, but potentially bright on the inside. It's just an aspect of black holes that not everyone has explored. I mean, one thing that had never occurred to me is that you say that if it's a really big black hole, you could survive, you could pass beyond the event horizon and survive for quite a while. I, I think you say you could survive, uh, you say at one point, you could prolong your life expectancy to as much as a year in a black hole trillion yeah. times more massive than the sun. Yeah, I mean, it's in that vicinity. Um, so, so if you fall, if the sun were to become a black hole tomorrow, some evil genius came along and you know, collapses the sun, um, cause the sun won't naturally go through that cycle. It's too small, but, um, it, it, the, a uh, star, the mass, a black hole, the mass of the sun, if you've thought of some other way to make it would only be about six kilometers across. So the other thing is that black holes are tiny and that's their irony that they are heavy, but tiny. And so this tiny six kilometer, you cross the event horizon. It's only six kilometers across. It would fit in a city easily. Um, you have a much less than a fraction of a second before you are in terrible peril. <laughs> and um, when, as you rush towards the center of that black hole. Now, the size of the black hole, and by the black hole here, I really mean the size of the event horizon. So when you cross and fall into the shadow, the bigger you make the black hole, the larger it scales up exactly. So if you're trillions of times the mass of the sun, although we haven't seen any black holes that big, we've, the biggest we've seen is in the tens of billions of range. So if you're tens of billions of times the mass of the sun, you're tens of billions of times bigger than that six kilometers. So you would literally be 60 billion kilometers how, across. How long could somebody survive inside the biggest black hole that we know to exist? So I, I, if you, I believe that it is, you could push it to about a year because you'd have that much longer to, you would have 60 billion times longer to live. And, um, and if there is something like, uh, yeah, so, so, right. So you'd be getting right at the point where you could have this possibly worse experience of the existential dread of knowing that the inevitability of this doom in the center of the black hole is uh, coming, but you would have this long time to ruminate if, on if, it. If, <laughs> it might not be the best if, experience. If you were in a spaceship that was you know, accelerating away from the center of the black hole, obviously mm -hmm. you could never get out, but could you prolong, mm -hmm. could you stay indefinitely yeah, like inside the event right, It's a very good question. No, you can't. And it's really intriguing why. So this is, again, one of those things that maybe people hadn't heard about black holes before. The Nobel Prize was recently awarded in October. And one of the recipients for Roger Penrose um, is really well, the award cites in specific this particular work that he did in the 60s, where he showed that if you had, um, let's say, uh, something 
with unhindered collapse, a star, a star collapsing unhindered without resistance, um, that it would inevitably, it wasn't a special mathematical trick or a special function of, of the solutions. It was absolutely a generic prediction, he says. It would inevitably create an event horizon, meaning curve space-time so strongly that not even light could escape at a certain point, when the star was a really became very dense. And now you might say, well, you said a black hole isn't a dense star. And here's where Sir Roger's work is so intriguing. He proved that that star could no more stay at the event horizon than it could race outward at the speed of light. And that inevitably the star is compelled to continue to collapse. So the star leaves behind like a kind of archaeological imprint in the shape of space-time, the event horizon, but it continues to fall, leaving that event horizon completely empty. And, um, and if you look at the mathematics of his work, what he shows, which is so like really, really challenges the imagination, he says like, suppose you were an astronaut who falls in behind that collapsed star and you left your friend Alice in a space station in orbit around the black hole. Um, what Alice imagined to be the center point of this sphere, this event horizon, right? Spatial center to you does not look like a point in space at all. To you, it looks like a point in time for you moving towards the center of the black hole is as inevitable as moving forward in time. And that's the relativity of space-time really in action. And so you cannot accelerate away from this, you know, we, we call the singularity, um, any more than you can back away from the future <laughs> and accelerate away from the next second. <laughs> yeah. So that's really what he proves that really, so yeah, don't even bother trying. You can, you might be able to do something interesting, like try to, spiral around for a little bit to prolong your trip, not make the most direct line, you know, but, but, um, but nope, you are, you are going to run into that singularity as inevitably as you will find yourself moving through the future. So, yeah, so you have no more than a year, but it sounds like from the book, all sorts of interesting things could happen to you in that year because time outside the, the, um, event horizon would be going really, really quickly. Um, yeah, you would watch the f civilizations come and go stars s racing through their life cycles and maybe the whole galaxy aging. You could potentially see it was, it was almost making me wonder if someone at the end of their life might want to intentionally enter. So you say so you knew that you had less than a year to live <laughs> that you would yeah, intentionally well, then, then go for it, man. <laughs> well, you would intentionally enter it and then like have, you know, people sending you news updates and, you know, descendants of yours uh -huh. could, you know, send you messages and stuff. And you could never communicate with them. But you could kind of get, like, in that last year of your life, you could get an update on everything that happens for, I don't that's know, millions a, of years or something. Yeah, I mean, that's um, it's an intriguing suggestion. If you, you knew you had a year to live, but you wanted to see your grandchildren born. And so you go on this epic journey um, so that your children have time to grow up have have their children and you get to see your, your grandchildren born. Um, so once you receive those messages, even though they would be extremely radically sped up, there's nothing wrong with capturing them with a gadget and slowing them down and being able to play out in uh, yeah. well, I, I your was own imagining time. You would have some sort of AI and you would get some sort of, you know, digital yeah. signal or something and it would give yeah, you a, exactly. a summary. And it would, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or you can even watch the home movies. It just, you know, your AI will slow them down for you. Yeah. I was even imagining, you know, some either in the far future or some alien civilization, you know, it might just be like a cemetery of uh, black holes, you mm-hmm. know, and then like the souls almost of, of all the you know people who entered the black holes were there and you knew that you could send the messages, even though you could never get mm-hmm. any back. I feel like you are starting a sci-fi novel. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful image. <laughs> like, you, you, like we could we could purposely write send people in pods. We don't have to send them all the way through the black hole, but just close enough. And you actually have to be incredibly, incredibly close to the event horizon <laughs> for this time dilation to be as significant as what we we're describing. Um, but um, but yeah, you, I can see I can see all kinds of narrative potential there. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this is a science fiction podcast, so this is the kind of thing we, we yeah. talk about. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I was t- talking to another friend, and I was saying, well, this is you know, I write this is a nonfiction book, and then I kind of said, well, actually, it's kind of like a speculative fiction book too. It's a yeah, I mean, you, you know, have, you have names, names, characters, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you ever thought about writing a like? Because I know you you wrote a novel um, about Alan Turing and and Kurt Girdle. Have you thought about writing a any other like sort of outer space fiction or anything? It's so I did once start. Uh, I would say a kind of speculative fiction novel. Um, it was a few years ago, and I had to put it aside to finish other things. But funnily enough, it's not about space. I think I needed to give myself some room away from that theme. So it's more about gene sequencing and, and, and crazily enough, a pandemic that breaks out in a wet market in Africa is the premise of the book. Um, was the opening of the book, but it has never been finished. So we will see. <laughs> well, so is that, um, do you have any professional um, expertise in, in viruses or biology or something? Or is that just completely outside I, your wheel? I don't. Like you, I get to talk to a lot of really interesting people, um, and I and I spend a lot of time preparing to talk to a lot of really interesting people. So I've I've sort of got very fascinated, almost because it wasn't my subject. Maybe um, in some of the wilder things that were going on with CRISPR and gene editing, and uh, and there, it just it really sparked my imagination. Again, I think because I. I had some breathing room away from it. And, um, and so that's really why I started to go down that track. It, I mean, I don't know how you feel when you're, when you're writing or you think about these things, but a lot of it is, has to do with you experiencing some kind of emotional current in response to something you've just heard or learned or uh, realized or had an epiphany. And then you want to translate that. You want to capture that feeling and relate and translate it for people. And I think that's sort of the experience I went through because I have the good fortune of knowing so many interesting scientists. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I I know you're involved with this thing called pioneer works. So when you talk about uh, interviewing interesting people, is that mostly what you're talking about or? Yeah. So um, pioneer works is a really beautiful place in Brooklyn, in Red Hook, Brooklyn, which is itself a, uh, a strange place. It's sort of remote for a New York City location. It's not directly on a train line, and you can get there by ferry. Or uh, uh, I mean, there are other ways to get there, but it's just it's right on the waterfront, and it has a really special history. And Pioneer Works itself is its mission is to be this 
experimental cultural center for art, music, science, tech, for everything to to uh, have the ability to have some friction to rub together and and um, and and allow for sparks. And um, I am the director of sciences there. I started the science studios there. And we have a lot of live events, or we used to pre-pandemic. <laughs> I mean, we would the the contrast. We would have twelve hundred people shoulder to shoulder in a sweltering hot hall, but you know, beautiful three-story high um, old ironworks factory for a conversation on animal consciousness or many worlds, or a conversation with Richard Dawkins, and. Um, of course, we can't do that right now and maybe won't be ever doing that again. That just might be something that we'll look back on in movies and think, oh, my gosh, can you imagine people shoulder to shoulder like that? Um, but we still have those conversations. I recently just had a conversation with Siddhartha Mukherjee, a Pulitzer Prize winner who's been writing a lot for The New Yorker about COVID and thinking about uh, the medical system. And, and it's just a delight to, to be able to invite people and do that. I'm sure you must feel that way. Also, the pleasure of of being able to engage people in these conversations. And the surprising thing to us was that there was such a big audience for it. We weren't sure we would get anybody showing up when we started. And there's a huge audience for it. Somebody says something to me in the audience, like, "Yeah, we." we were sick of being dumb or <laughs> nobody wants to be dumb anymore <laughs> or, you know, or they're so moved. They're so emotional. They're so, and we, we do not, uh, try to hold the scientists back. We're completely comfortable with the scientists getting to the point of what I call the hard stuff where they don't know the answers. And that's the most exciting part. That's, and for people to feel that they're part of that process and watching that process is, is really cool. Yeah, I, I really like that little thought experiment you just had there, though, of, you know, maybe people in the future will look back on cramming 1,200 mm -hmm. people into a, you know, in, into a, you know, a lecture, lecture hall, hall or whatever. With, with horror. Arts hall, really, an exhibition hall, really. Yeah. yeah and Because, I, I mean, that's one of the things I really like about science fiction is the ability to sort of imagine like, oh, in some other society, future society or future culture, they might look at the things we're doing and say, how mm -hmm. could they have ever done that when it just seems totally normal to us? Yeah, I, I and I do think what's also a pleasure about that is it reorients you now. It gives you the perspective you need to realize something about the present moment with by by launching yourself forward and looking and looking again and seeing a new reality. I I, I really like that kind of transformative experience with conceptual um, fiction. And the other thing actually just to say about PioneerWorks is that we are now broadcasting our virtual assembly, which we call the broadcast. And so what we can't do in person, we're now doing online, which has been really fun experiment too. It's just, it's all, it's, it's all exploration. Yeah. Yeah. So I was looking, yeah, like I said, I was looking through your, your Twitter and, and I listened to some interviews with you and you mentioned a number of authors, you know, that I like, you know, you mentioned, you know, Casual Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go, Cormac McCarthy's oh, The Road. God, that book. And yeah. just on Twitter, oh. you mentioned in the last couple of months, Jonathan Leatham and Ursula K. Le Guin. Mm -hmm. um, so we're yeah. all, you know, obviously authors who, you know, would be of interest to our, uh, our listeners. Yeah. I mean, all of those books and authors you just mentioned, they, they go, they go into this real conceptual mode sometimes. And, and, and I do find that really thrilling. Never Let Me Go is just a stunning book. And, 
Um, I mean, they all are. The road devastated me. I, the road was like <gasps> a total masterpiece and such a departure from McCarthy in terms of his own style in so many ways. Um, you know, there's no, there's no where, what, who, when, or how in that book. Nobody has a name. No event is explained. It's masterful. So yeah, Leatham has a new book out. I'm really, I'm hoping to talk to him after I talk to you. We're having, we're getting on the phone. <laughs> oh, to, like later today. <laughs> yeah, oh, just cool. to, just to chat. Um, nothing recorded yet. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I really, um, yeah, I get a lot from, from that kind of stuff. And I think one of the interesting things is that when people do sci-fi or speculative fiction or conceptual books, they think about structure a lot. And that's a big part of, of making a book strong and powerful. And I feel it when I read those books, I feel like all of like, I'm entering some almost architectural space that they've created for me. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just, those are the kinds of books I love. I have a whole syllabus on it for a while. I was teaching a science in literature class and, um, and I have like a pretty fun syllabus about, about these kinds of books. Yeah. Could you, could you think of like two or three? Well, we, yeah, some of the ones you've mentioned are on it. Never let me go in the road. And, um, there's a book by Martin Amos called Time Zero and the book runs backwards. <laughs> and that's what I mean about structure. Like really difficult structures that are interesting like that. There's a lot of plays, Tom Stoppard's Arcadia, uh, which is an incredibly interesting play and lots of references to entropy and math. Um, Proof, the play is on the syllabus Copenhagen about largely about Niels Bohr and the relationship with uh, Heisenberg and the war effort, but also about quantum mechanics. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I also have some I, white noises on there by Don DeLillo, uh, which is a, a hilarious book. It's so funny. And it's on the syllabus because there's kind of this chemical disaster that happens in this academic, small academic town, kind of college town. And, and nobody really gets the science right. And everyone's messing up like when they're trying to talk about it. and eventually kind of the cultural leader that emerges is a teenager who took chemistry the most recently. Like it, it's just, it's very witty stuff, <laughs> but the book is funny. Um, so yeah, there's a few. That's cool. Yeah. You know, um, I interviewed Kasia Ishiguro years ago, and that's been one of my most popular interviews because at the end, you know, I interviewed him about his book, um, The Buried Giant. And then, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, so we talked for the allotted time and then he had to go for a, a, a reading or something in 20 minutes. And he said, just could I ask you a couple questions about fantasy and science fiction because I'm just interested in it. And, uh -huh. and so like the last you can go and listen to the last 20 minutes of the interview. is oh, just cool. him interviewing me about, you know. Trying to try oh, learn neat. more about fantasy and science fiction. So. Well, I mean, he also, you can tell that there is somebody who really is thoughtful about his projects. And almost, I don't know, never let me go being kind of almost as though he was a student of a subject. And you know how you're asking me, why would you write about that? Not the thing you know the best. And in a way, that's why. Because as a student of a new field, you, you will be more likely to have those feelings of being blown away or mystified or intrigued because it's also fresh for you. And I sense that he's got that kind of a spirit. So it's lovely that he interviewed you. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you're very intellectually curious. And I mean, I think like mm -hmm. a lot of, for a lot of writers, the fun is really the research and then, you know, then you have to actually write the book. The hard part. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The fun is the ideas. 
And then you're like, ah, oh. I mean, I have spent no question entire days on a single paragraph. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes it f- flows out and sometimes the idea really requires a lot of approaches, a lot of approaches before, before you find it. Uh, how to express it, yeah. how to express the idea. There's this quote, I'm try- I think it was Oscar Wilde, I'm not sure, but somebody asked him, you know, how was your day? And he says, oh, mm-hmm. I had a really productive day. In the morning, I added a comma, and then the, in the afternoon, I took it out. Or no, I took it out in the morning, and then in the afternoon, I put it back in. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've had days like that. The interesting thing about trying to launch something like the broadcast, so I'm editor-in-chief, interim editor-in-chief until we begin to hire somebody, but um, but is how fast I can be at certain things, because I do not consider myself a quick writer. I am long form. I don't write a ton of essays. I don't write opinion pieces very often. You know, there's, I don't knock them out. And so it's a whole other thing um, when you're doing magazine work and regular publications. So it's, it's a stretch and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. All right, cool. So I have a couple more black hole questions I want to ask you. So will, um, so, you know, far future civilizations or super advanced aliens or something, will they be able to make use of black holes? for power, propulsion, or weapons? Mm. Interesting. So I had uh, this idea about try- a way to try to trap a black hole so that you could you could uh, use its energy. Now, there's many ways that you could weaponize black holes. They're very dangerous things, if you, especially in some sense if you make small ones. So, so black holes, as Stephen Hawking is famous for teaching us, slowly evaporate through what's known as Hawking radiation, a very subtle quantum process. But the smaller they are, the hotter they are, and the faster they evaporate. So they can actually explode like firecrackers or even bombs. So they they can be quite lethal. So you could try to figure out a way to uh, make black holes that explode on people. <laughs> or, well, actually, or let, when, let me read yeah. this. Let me read this line. You say the most powerful jets from supermassive black holes blow craters in neighboring galaxies, exterminating any species that may be evolving on billions of planets there. So that's yeah, a pretty big have, firecracker. That's a, that's a, that is not the Hawking radiation. So that's another way to weaponize them is to turn them basically into ray guns. So these jets that we talked about earlier, if you have a magnetic storm, if you put a, bla- a spinning, spinning black hole in a magnetic field, it will create tremendous havoc in the magnetic storms. And so it's basically creating – the jets are basically like giant ray guns where – high energy particles, x-rays, gamma rays are being flung along these magnetic fields, creating these thin jets that then break out of the galaxy and can punch into other galaxies. And we've actually observed that destroying presumably any exoplanets that would be in that part of that galaxy and any sentient life that was trying to emerge there. So if you, you, you do not want to be in, in the line of fire of a jet because <laughs> with it would come all the attendant biological consequences of being struck by lots of radiation. But you think that that, uh, is that something that could be aimed like by like aliens well, or something? It's, you know, I mean, it's not impossible. It's pretty tricky. So ways to trap black holes. So first of all, uh, the way to trap black holes would be to kind of, I was imagining, I just was kind of fantasizing about this, would be to charge them up and then to be able to grab them electromagnetically. Uh, 
So uh, electromagnetics is a much stronger force than gravity. Gravity is incredibly weak. If you think about it, the entire Earth is pulling on me right now, the entire Earth. But I can still jump around. That's incredible. It's so weak. It's trillions and trillions and trillions of times weaker uh, than than a, a number much bigger than that that I can't even name <laughs> than electromagnetism. And, um, and so if you charged it up a little bit, you could use magnetic tweezers to kind of manipulate it if you made a small black hole in the laboratory by smashing things together. So if you made a small black hole and you wanted to try to keep it from evaporating, you could put it in a little hot box so it would absorb some heat, emit some heat, might be able to equilibrate. You'd have to, it would kind of start growing on you and you would have to try to uh, yeah, try to keep it in this trapped electromagnetic kind of uh, tweezers, sometimes they're called. So I don't know if it could work, but then once you do that, then you can start spinning it, putting it in magnetic fields. You could, you could weaponize them. <laughs> How about uh, civilian, civilian uses? I once, so, be, so black holes can create electromagnetic circuits if you throw magnets around them. So, uh, for instance, if you have a neutron star, which is a very close to becoming a black hole, but not quite there, it is actually a dead star. There's a surface there of material, it's like a giant neutron. They can have magnetic fields trillions of times that of the Earth. And as they swing around black holes in, in big astrophysical systems, you can create basically electromagnetic circuits. So the black hole, by whipping around this magnet, is creating a battery. It's what I like to call it, a black hole battery. So I once tried to imagine, well, how what would it take for that black hole battery to power, for instance, New York City? And I think I concluded that the black hole would have to be, uh, we would have to use all the resources in the solar system, essentially. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it would have to be the size, I mean, maybe we'd have to make it out of the moon or, uh, you know, a giant Earth-sized magnet. It would be very, very hard to get a lot of power out of it. But at astrophysical scales, as you said, the irony of the darkest phenomenon in the universe becoming the brightest beacons, precisely because they do things like this. How, if we want to get to a black hole, like where's the closest black hole? Like, So I think there's one maybe around six. Oh, what's the number? Is it six... I googled. I was in my ears away, or something. Uh, Google, there they said there was one thirty-five hundred. Um, okay, yeah. So in the in the just over a thousand in the thousands of light years away, um, yeah, that's that's exactly possible. And there could be some closer that we just haven't seen because they're very faint. The ones that we see, we only see like we discussed indirectly because they're doing something. Um, to their environment. So it's very possible there's a rogue black hole wandering around. And so there, were, there was a time where people were looking for a kind of a twinkle. So let's say between you and our view of the Milky Way galaxy, a black hole wanders very close, less than thousands of light years away. You might see a little twinkle of the background light, a little lensing, we call it, of the light because it's bending the path of the light and uh, absorbing some of the light. And, and so you'd see this this little microlensing twinkle and um we haven't had any success detecting any that way would, but that would be how you would see them if they were wandering around nearby and we think about out of the hundreds of billions of stars in the galaxy that about a billion of those or maybe more would become black holes at the end of their life cycle would that be a uh, like a navigational hazard or would spaceships <laughs> be able to see them coming yeah i mean you oral? you you this is, I mean, it could be a real navigational hazard. Like, how would you know you were driving right into one? <laughs> you might notice because 
because you were not going on the path you had intended because your engines were no longer successfully keeping you on track and you were drifting towards something and you would start to notice that you were off course. So that would be a way to notice it. But if you happen to be heading straight for it um, and it was completely uh, unilluminated by any background light, you, you wouldn't necessarily know. So that's when you would want to pull your guide out of your back pocket. And... Yeah, exactly. And consult chapter five or whichever chapter <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there were also really interesting ideas that were promoted. For instance, I believe this was Freeman Dyson, the famous physicist, who's also incredibly imaginative, creative guy, uh, was saying things about gravitational waves. So when black holes orbit each other, even if they are completely dark and there is no source of light, they can orbit each other and merge and bobble into one bigger black hole. And during the final stage of these very dramatic orbits, they could be hundreds of kilometers across, orbiting each other near the speed of light, so hundreds of times a second. And they act like mallets on a drum or a gong. They create these waves in the shape of space-time. And if you were floating near enough, you technically, possibly, conceivably could hear it with the, even in vacuum <laughs> because your eardrum would oscillate in response to the waves more readily than the rest of you. I mean, that's how sound works. And, you know, your head doesn't ring with the, um, with the pressure waves of, of, of air, but your eardrum does because it's built to be that flexible. So it's conceivable you would hear the black holes ringing and then you would know to get out of there. <laughs> um, but Freeman Dyson said, well, maybe we can use these waves, these gravitational waves, as a way to send signals to uh, other life forms out there because they travel, even though they're not light, they travel at the speed of light and basically unimpeded. It's very hard to to uh, absorb them or um, redirect them. So they would be a good possibly vehicle on which to encode messages and send them out into the universe. So the LIGO experiment succeeded in recording these waves from two black holes colliding, recorded essentially the sound of the collision over a billion years later. That gravitational wave traveled unimpeded through the universe on its way to us before human beings were working on the earth, right? And so, uh, so it's kind of a cool idea. And you kind of imagine on the earth, right when the signal was outside on its way to us, Einstein is born and thinks up gravitational waves. 50 years later, people are scrambling to build an instrument and it's like on the collision course with this detection. The other interesting thing about that is the most powerful event we've ever recorded since the big bang. <laughs> and yet none of it came out in light and we could not take a picture of that event at all. All we could do is hear the sound. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you're talking about these these sort of vast scales and everything, like I don't think I don't know if I really appreciated that everything in the universe is eventually going to get sucked into a black hole. Am I understanding that correctly? It is certainly a viable future. So we are our entire solar system together are in orbit around a supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy, and if left. Uh, without any other distractions, we would slowly fall into very, very slowly. <laughs> the sun will die long before this happens. It's a lot more to worry about, you know, in the news. But we will slowly spiral into that black hole. And that that is our fate. We are in orbit around a black hole, every bit as much as we are in orbit around the sun. And so in some sense, I think sometimes, oh, the sun earned this special role as the center of our solar system and then was displaced again because the black hole is the center of our galaxy. 
and the sun is, is orbiting that black hole. Now, other things can happen along the way. We're going to collide with Andromeda. Andromeda has its own really big, supermassive black hole at its center. Probably every ordinary galaxy does have a big black hole at its center. And our black holes are going to merge, and there will be a different one in the center that's even bigger. And in the process, the solar system might stay intact. It very likely will stay intact, but it'll just kind of get knocked around, and there will be a new galaxy that emerges after a few collisions and will be in orbit around this other black hole, which we will eventually fall into. But then something else might happen, like the universe is expanding, and if that expansion gets faster and faster, it's possible it could tear the galaxy apart and take us away from this um, fate of falling into a black hole. So essentially, if the expansion of the universe doesn't overwhelm us, it would be safe to say that everything that can will fall into a black hole. And then those black holes will evaporate. And that will be one variant of the sort of slow demise of the universe. So even if people read your book, that's still going to happen to them? <laughs> yeah, I know. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> there, um, there, yeah, you, you can... Um, <laughs> If like if you got on a spaceship, just makes it that far. If you have a, a spaceship and it's pointed away from in the direction of the least black holes, and just to like fire your jets as far, hard as you can, you'll start. You're still going to end up getting sucked into a black hole sooner. Well, or later. You, then, then actually, you know, this whole idea of gravity being weak, you would you'd do pretty well by doing that because <laughs> they <laughs> really are. Look, there is a black hole four million times the mass of the sun in our galaxy. We're orbiting it, but very safely. So yeah, you could fire out and, and go into a region between galaxies, and then the expansion of the space-time would take those galaxies away from you. And so that would be one way to, um, to hope for, to avoid that fate, but it's still not so great out there in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Watching well, I mean, if they have Netflix, from you, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think the signal would make it. So yeah, so you, yeah, it's pretty lonely out there. It's a pretty bleak place to be. The other thing it might wanted... be more fun to jump into the black hole. <laughs> the other thing I want to ask you about, you know, I interviewed um, a while back a science fiction author named Peter Watts, and he pointed me to this article by Crane in Westmoreland called Are Black Hole Starships Possible? And I was just curious if you ever have you ever uh, come across this black hole starship concept? Uh, no, it's super interesting. You should send it to me. I've not heard of it before. Yeah, it's on like archive.org, um, but there's also there's okay. a Wikipedia entry called Black Hole Starship that um sort of Okay, I will I will look it up. It. Yeah. I will look it up, but so they try to use the black hole. That's what you were asking, like as a navigation device for propulsion. Yeah, for propulsion. Um, it sounds hmm. like it's pretty speculative, you know, like um, yeah, speculative. But um, uh, well, we know that we we definitely use other gravitational sources as propellant to propel spacecraft in our own solar system and we we slingshot around planets and we use that to propel things so possibly you would want to this would be an extreme variant of that maybe where you use the very 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 near to the uh shadow of a black hole try to 
to get a little boost by slingshotting around it. It'd be dangerous. <laughs> yeah, actually, I mean, the Wikipedia page is only like four paragraphs long, so I can just read you the key sentence. It says, in a more detailed analysis, a proposal to create an artificial black hole and using a parabolic reflector to reflect its Hawking radiation was discussed in this paper I just mentioned. So oh, I don't know if that cool. means anything to you. It doesn't mean anything to me. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of cool. Maybe I'm not exactly sure what they mean, but I, I think so you can you can use radiation as an energy source to propel things. Um, so if a black hole is very small and very bright, uh, because that's where the quantum effects become more important when you start to have really tiny black holes, they start to probe their quantum behavior more in depth than they do when they're big, huge lumbering things then maybe that astrophysical radiation is literally like solar pressures, like a wind that would be able to propel something. And there are, there are some ideas like propelling tiny little postage stamp-sized detectors, propelling them near the spit of light by, by shining a laser on them and letting them travel to far distant places that we could never hope to uh, approach with a big spacecraft because it's too energetically expensive. So maybe there's some idea of using the Hawking radiation like that laser to propel little sails, little tiny sails for space exploration. Yeah, that would be super cool. I also wanted to ask you, so um, one of the, the lines in the book just jumped out at me. You say, the consequence of information conservation is reversibility. If information is always protected, then you can predict the future and reconstruct the past. And mm -hmm. um, I don't, know if you, I don't know if you saw yeah. the TV show Devs, but it kind of made me think of that. Yeah, that's that was an interesting show. I mean, I've consumed so many shows in quarantine <laughs> that they're all kind of a blur. But that was an, that was an intriguing show. Um, I one one thing about surviving the black hole. We were talking about falling into as big a black hole as possible, so you at least prolong your life. You 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 can send messages, even though they won't get out. But I kind of implore the astronaut scientist on this exploration to do so. And one of the reasons is the thin vapor of hope that all of the information somehow comes out of the black hole in the form of the Hawking radiation. The, the, the most important theoretical work being done is about this. And if that Hawking radiation has encoded in it all of that information, then Alice or Alice's clones or Alice's descendants who stayed safely on the spacecraft outside the black hole could collect all that Hawking radiation and in principle, at least theoretically, it might take longer than the age of the universe, but at least in principle, reconstruct all of the information of your year-long experiences and all those transmissions you tried to send out and thought would never make it out. And in fact, could, could in principle reconstruct you and so that even your death was reversible. Yeah, so so in devs there was they had this like giant supercomputer and the idea was that if you have basically yeah. any set of information you could extrapolate anything that's ever happened in the universe from it because it's all interconnected all the relationships are all interconnected and um I don't know how yeah I mean well but but it seems that reminds me of what you're saying because it's almost like if you had you know say you had a message written on a piece of paper and you ripped up the piece of paper mm -hmm. like if you had a powerful enough simulation of everything that happened subsequently, you could. That's exactly right. Extrapolate how the paper must have been assembled in the first place. Right. Absolutely. So make it even worse. Burn the piece of paper. It's, it's absolutely no human would attempt the task, but scientifically, mathematically, informally, 
all of that information still exists in the world. And it, it is in the smoke, it's in the heat, it's in the direction of every atom, it's in the light that hit your eyes and were absorbed by your eyes. All of that information existed, ex continues to exist, and leads to future consequences. So in principle, although it's a feat that would certainly exceed even a supercomputer, and I'm sure you could probably prove something, we talked about the mathematicians Turing and Goodall earlier, along the lines of it's uncomputable. Very likely there is no computer that could ever process all the information. But nonetheless, it exists. And, um, and that's what quantum theorists want from the black, evaporating black hole. They want to know that that information is just in the world because the alternative is basically to break the entire program that physics holds sacred, which is, as you said, predictability of the future from the past and the past from the future. But so we might at some point be able to send a probe into a black hole and find out what happened to it? Yeah, if we if it if it if all of that information is indeed somehow entangled in some very complex quantum way, maybe through quantum entangled wormholes <laughs> with the Hawking radiation so that the probe that fell in, which the event horizon would never let out, is somehow quantum entangled um, and thereby encoded in the Hawking radiation. Yeah, in principle, that information is out there then. But it would be just as hard as trying to reconstruct the note from the smoke of a smoldering fire. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's, 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 just, yeah, like it's, I'm sure everyone can tell it's a really fascinating book. Um, Thank you so much. much out of time, but do you have <laughs> any, uh, are you, do you have any final thoughts or any other projects you're working on? Or are you only going to write 145 page books from here on out? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what's next. I'm, um, no, I, I definitely am going to take a little hiatus from, from nonfiction for a little while. So this is, uh, this, is, this is kind of a special little moment. I'm not racing out to, to write more. Um, I'm just kind of interested in watching the world and responding and thinking about it and working on the broadcast and pioneer works and all these explorations. What about you? Are you going to write some more science fiction? Uh, well, sort of, you know, I, I wrote, you know, I, I published about 30 science fiction stories um, in my 20s. That is incredible. Um, since I started doing the podcast, I found it sort of took over my life and I haven't had time to write anything, but I'm hoping to get back to it at some point. Yeah, it's very easy for your creative energies to to get eaten up and consumed. Um so I'm kind of interested in, in, in being curious for a while, like you were describing, being a curious observer for a little while. I really, I'm going to enjoy consuming other people's work for a little while. <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm getting, like you said, I'm, I'm getting so many good ideas, you know, so I figure mm -hmm. at some point I'll just, uh, you know, go back and listen to all these interviews I've done and just write down all the great ideas yeah. and I can, you know, write some science fiction, write some more science yeah, fiction. Yeah, totally fascinating. I'll look forward to it. <laughs> Yeah, and if you ever, uh, Paul, you know, if you ever write another novel, I don't know if you uh, would ever go back to the um, the virus I would one really you mentioned. Love to. I would really love to go back to that novel. I couldn't believe it though when this actually happened. It was one of those things. Now, maybe a virus novel is not the. There's a lot of fiction stories about viruses in film and um, and in books. So, but I, it just was right on. It was uh, a virus that crossed the species barrier was exactly what I was fascinated about and how that happens and what the effects are. And a lot of it was about relationships to animals. So I would love to get back to that. I'm not sure I'll ever have 
uh, that kind of free time, (laughs) (laughs) but hopefully soon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely looking forward to whatever you do next. Uh, I really enjoyed Black Hole Survival Guide. So, yes, we've been speaking with Jan Eleven. So, Jana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was really fun. Really, really enjoyed it. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Jan Eleven for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.